First Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving all thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Thank you, Zach, for reading our scripture, and thank you for being here tonight. We're grateful for your presence, and hopefully and prayerfully, this will be a productive hour for us as we worship God, and we're very grateful for the opportunity to be together, uh, to enjoy fellowship with one another. We are looking tonight at 1 Timothy chapter 2. In our lesson tonight, we're going to be talking about worshiping God in prayer, and so we want to look at what Paul has to say in chapter 2. Somewhat of an extended discussion on prayer, public prayer, particularly in the realm of worshiping God. And I want to begin tonight by first of all talking about the exhortation to pray. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the passage that Zach read a moment ago, Paul said, Therefore, I exhort or encourage, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then if you would, connect to that down in verse 8, where Paul said, Therefore I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I want to begin this point by first of all talking about the priority of prayer. And then we'll think for a moment, moment or two about the people who pray. But first think about the priority of prayer. And what Paul is saying here is that prayer ought to be of primary importance to the church. And if you go back and you look at the early church, one of the things I think that is abundantly clear is the fact that the early disciples believed in the power of prayer. They believed in the privilege of prayer. And they spent a great time, a great deal of time in prayer to God. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the Bible says, speaking of the early church, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Prayer was fundamental to the early church. You remember over in Acts chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John had healed a man who sat at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem, and he was a beggar. And the Bible tells us that he asked alms of Peter and John, and they said, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you. And of course, they healed this man. And as a result of that, that got them into a lot of hot water with the Jewish hierarchy of that day. They were called before the Sanhedrin council and questioned or interrogated about the healing of this man. And they were threatened not to preach nor teach in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, Luke tells us that when they got back with the, uh, with the other disciples, with members of the body of Christ, they prayed that with all boldness they might, they might speak the word of God. And then over in Acts chapter 12, you remember when Herod the king, the Bible tells us in that context, 
that he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, Luke says that he had Peter seized and put into prison. And the Bible says that the church prayed to God for Peter. And so over and over again, we read about the early church engaging in prayer. And I think one of the things that they did on a regular basis as they came together for worship, they came to pray, to pray to the God of heaven. Now I want you to think with me for just a moment. We talk about the priority of prayer, but think about the people who pray. Look if you would at verse 8. Paul said, Therefore I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and doubting. Now, several things I think are of importance here. First, Paul in the original here uses exclusively the term that denotes the male. Now back in verse 3, you'll remember, Paul would say, speaking of offering prayer to God, that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God and in the sight of God and the Savior. And then he said in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The word men there in the original means both male and female. And so what Paul is saying is God wants all people to be saved, whether male or female. But when it comes to worship and those who are to lead in worship, he restricts that to the male only. Now, let me call attention to a couple of other passages just very quickly. Over in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul would say, But if I am delayed, or if I tarry, he said, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself, behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul here is saying that he is giving them divine legislation so that they might know how to conduct or behave themselves in God's church or in God's house. That would obviously pertain to the government of the church as well as the worship of the church. In chapter 3, an extended amount of time is given to those who function as elders and deacons in the Lord's church. And the idea is that they are to meet certain criterion. In so doing, they can serve as bishops or overseers in the church as well as deacons. Well, how does this relate to worship? Well, Paul is giving a pattern for worship. Now, some would say that what Paul is saying here is legislating something that was cultural. But I want you to look at what Paul says down in verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire or clothing. But he said, that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And then listen to what he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, again, you think about some would say, well, he's talking about something that was cultural in that day and time. But listen to him in verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. What 
what God is saying here is, is that when it comes to the role of worship and the legislation that is being imposed on the church, this is not something that is cultural, but rather this goes all the way back to creation. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and that's what Paul is saying. His argument here is not about culture, but rather it's about creation. Now, just by way of maybe a side addendum here, it has become somewhat fashionable in the church, in a lot of different quarters, a lot of different sectors, for elders in the Lord's church to say, okay, we're going to step back and re-examine some things. It's always interesting that they want to re-examine issues that relate to, for example, how we worship God. Are we going to use an instrument or not? Or some have gone back and re-looked at what the Bible has to say about the role of women in the church and the organizational structure of the church. I don't have any problem with people going back and reassessing what the scriptures say. As a matter of fact, I think we ought to want to go back and to sift the scriptures and then draw certain conclusions. But it seems to me that when those who are going back and re-examining these issues, it's interesting that they always come back and conclude that in the church we've had it wrong. Wouldn't it be refreshing for somebody to go back and sift the scriptures and to look with an objective honest heart what the Bible has to say with regard to the instrument and then to conclude that okay you know what maybe we have had it right as a matter of fact we have had it right we don't use instruments of music because there's no authority for it when it comes to the role of women when elders go back and re-examine that well go back and re-examine the scriptures Many times their conclusion is, okay, we think God's now going to permit them to operate in a more expanded role. Rarely, if ever, have I heard them coming back and saying, you know what? The conclusion is what the Bible says, it says, we believe it, we're going to honor it, it's been put to the test, and we're going to uphold what the authority of Christ teaches. Now, I say all that to simply say, that when we talk about those who lead in worship, what God is saying is the males are to do that. Now, that in no way diminishes the role of women in the church because women are a vital part of the church. As a matter of fact, in many places, they are the backbone of the church. And they do so many things, and many times they do those things behind the scenes. Sometimes they engage in various works in the church that men could not do because they don't have the ability. And so I think about how blessed the church is to have godly women. And just because God has said in the realm of worship, in the role of church government, that men are to operate in that realm does not in any way diminish the exalted role of women in the church. Now listen to what Paul said with regard to those who pray, those who lead in prayer. He said that he desires that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now, some take this to mean that God is legislating here that one of the postures of prayer would be that we lift up holy hands. And if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8 and look at Solomon as he dedicated the temple, 
The Bible talks about how Solomon lifted up his hands, and I think really when you go back and look at the, at the scriptures, the lifting up of hands, it was the raising of the hands, and the, and the palms pointed upward toward heaven. It was simply a posture of prayer. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here, though if somebody wanted to do that, that's their prerogative. I remember years ago when I was in college, we went to a small congregation in North Nashville. And there was an aged brother there that would lead prayer from time to time. And I remember being in the back and you asked the question, how do you know this? Because I had my eyes open. But I remember seeing this aged brother lead in prayer and he would always hold his right hand up. Well, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think what Paul is talking about is that those who lead in prayer, those who engage in prayer, are to strive to the best of their ability to live a pure and holy life. And what they're lifting up is a holy life in the eyes of God. Furthermore, listen to what he says. They are to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In other words, those who lead in prayer, and when we go before the throne of God, we want to do so free from anger and wrath and bitterness. Or impurities of life. Do you remember, for example, over in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul said, let all, remember he said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking with all malice be put away from you. And he said, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So the idea is that we don't harbor grudges. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. In James chapter 4, James would say, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. And then he would say, cleanse your hearts, you sinners. So the idea, again, lifting up a holy life in the eyes of God. So we think about the priority of prayer, that is, under the point, the exhortation to pray. There is the priority to pray, and then the people who pray. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our study, and that is the elements of prayer. Listen again to what Paul said. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now Paul uses some terms here that in many ways, well, well, really, I guess if we wanted to just cut to the chase, so to speak, they all go back to the idea of prayer. Now, the terms that are used all all have an emphasis on prayer, but they're used in different ways. For example, when he talks about supplications. To supplicate is to pray, but there's a very specific meaning here. Prayer, intercession, etc. So think with me for just a moment or two about the particulars of prayer. With regard to the word supplications, the idea is that someone is in want or need. Sometimes we use the word, as a matter of fact, Thayer uses the term indigent. In our day and time, we talk about those who are in indigent care. And so you think about somebody who is in extreme need or want. And what Paul is saying here is that those who supplicate God, they are coming before the throne of God with a very specific need a very specific want. 
And they're entreating his favor. They're asking God to intervene in their lives. You remember, for example, over in Hebrews chapter 5, when the writer takes us back to the cross, and he talks about Jesus, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto God. And if you go back and you look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is literally pouring out his heart to the Father. And I think it's interesting that in Luke chapter 20, well, in Luke chapter 22, when Luke gives that narration of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he said that Jesus being in agony prayed more earnestly. Now, what kind of needs did Jesus have? Well, he's going to the cross, isn't he? And we talk about here is the God-man, Jesus who became flesh. And so this human dimension of Jesus, he's struggling with the weight of the cross and all of the implications that, that come with the cross. And so here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is wrestling with what's before him. He's struggling and he's in need and so he is entreating the favor of God, isn't he? And that's the idea here. Now there's a second word that is used by Paul. First he says that we're to go before the throne of God with supplications. But then he uses the word prayers. Generically we use this term Whenever we talk about praying, don't we? Whether it, whether it be because we're supplicating the throne of God or making intercession for somebody. But the idea of offering up prayer to God. Specifically, the word carries with it the idea of directing our hearts to the throne of God. We're praying to God. We understand that God is on his throne and we are before that throne and we're in his presence. But the word also has application or really carries with it the idea of a specific place of prayer. Let me give you some examples here. You remember in Luke chapter 6 when Jesus went out into the mountain? And the Bible says that he spent the night in prayer to God before he selected the apostles. That's the idea. Over in Luke chapter 19, the Bible talks about Jesus and you can read about this in John chapter 2 as well. When Jesus went into the temple for the purpose of cleansing it, you remember? They were buying and selling in the midst of the temple. And Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer. And he said, you've made it a den of thieves or robbers. There's the idea. In Acts chapter 16, we read about a lady by the name of Lydia. Lydia, as you well know, was converted to Christ, but she and some other, some other people in the first century, they went out by the riverside. And Luke says they customarily made prayer to God. There's the idea right there. So you think about when we come together to worship God on the first day of the week, one of the things that we do in this specified place, and look, the building is not holy, the pews are not holy, there's nothing about this building that's, that is holy. But we're in the presence of a holy God and we have to have a place to assemble, don't we? So the idea is when collectively we come together on the first day of the week, we do so with the intent to come before the throne of God and to pray to Him. And so that's the idea here 
when we talk about the word prayer. Now, there's a third term that Paul uses, and that is intercessions. And what Paul is saying here is that we go before the throne of God on behalf of others. When we come together on the first day of the week or in the middle of the week, one of the things that we do is that we pray for one another, don't we? Specifically, there are people that we know that are hurting, suffering, sick, lost loved ones, etc. And so we lift their names up before the throne of God. An example of this would be, you remember in James chapter 5? When James said, is anyone among you sick? He said, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So all we're doing is going before the throne of God on behalf of one another. Now you think about how all of these terms really are used interchangeably. So he talks about supplications, prayers, intercessions. And then he said, the giving of thanks. One of the, I think one of the maybe hallmarks of prayer is the fact that every prayer ought to be undergirded with a spirit of thanksgiving. All the way back in the Psalms, in, for example, in Psalm 100, the psalmist said, enter into his courts with thanksgiving and be thankful to him. How much we have to be grateful for. So when we come together collectively, now, granted, individually we pray on a daily basis. Paul here is not talking about individual prayer per se, but he's talking about corporate prayer. And so he's saying when we come together, one of the things that we do is we give God thanks for all of his rich blessings. And you think about, again, how blessed we are. Remember James said every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. Do you remember in Colossians chapter 4 when he said, continue steadfastly in prayer, and then he attached to that, watching therein with thanksgiving. So the idea is that our, that our prayers are accompanied by a spirit of thanksgiving. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, in nothing be anxious, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. So there's the idea. So we are people who have hearts filled with gratitude. Now, there's a third thing I want you to see. We talk about the exhortation to pray, the elements of prayer, and then the extent of prayer. This has to do with the idea of the people for whom we're to pray. And Paul here, in a, generic, in a very generic way, he talks about how Supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks are to be made for all men. That would be generic, wouldn't it? But then in a very specific way, he says we need to pray for kings and all who are in authority. So what about the privilege of prayer? Now you think about how blessed we are to communicate with God every, every day. Corporately speaking, we can come together and we can pray for one another. And we can pray for the leaders of our country, the leaders of the church. But let me just very quickly just say this in terms of the people for whom we pray. 
At Olive Branch, we have a long list, a laundry list of people that are sick, battling disease, shut in. Some, quite frankly, really, really struggling and hurting. And so as, as the church, we have the opportunity to bow in the presence of God and to lift their names up before God's throne. That is, that is a tremendous privilege that we shouldn't take for granted. And I can assure you that, that when people know that we're praying for them, whether it be individually or corporately, it is greatly appreciated. And there are people that will tell you how much they appreciate the church praying for them think again about Acts chapter 12 when Herod the king is doing everything that he can to hurt the church James one of the apostles is murdered put to death Peter's in prison and what's the church doing they're praying they're praying for brother Peter and if you read the context, you'll find that Peter is released miraculously. Now, we have the opportunity to pray to a loving God who, through his providence, answers our prayers, doesn't he? And you think about the opportunity that we have to lift up before the throne of God those who are sick and hurting, the bereaved. And doesn't that fall in line with what Paul said in Galatians 6, 2, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, is it not bearing the burdens of others when we lift them up in prayer? What about in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, when Paul said to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice gives us the opportunity to pray for them. And again, I mentioned James chapter 5 when James asked the question, is any among you sick? The idea is ask the elders of the church to pray. So we have that right, we have that privilege. But then also, we have the opportunity to lift up before the throne of God those who need the gospel, don't we? Listen to what Paul says. You think about the context here. And Paul is saying that he wants the church to pray to God, to offer up supplications, prayers, intercessions, the giving of thanks. And he said in verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now look at verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. We have the opportunity to pray for those who are lost. Now in Colossians chapter 4, do you remember the apostle Paul? He encouraged those saints in the first century in about AD 62 to continue steadfastly in prayer. In verse 3, he said, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word that we might make known the mystery for which I'm in chains. All Paul is saying there is, look, those who, the, the church at Colossae, the, the saints there, He's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray on my behalf and those who are with me. You pray that God would open a door so that we might share the gospel. 
Sometimes collectively we pray for the lost and we pray that God will open a door of opportunity for us. When that door opens, we need to, we need to seize it, don't we? We need to open the door and go through it. That's all Paul's saying here. So to pray for the lost, in Romans chapter 10, Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The gospel is God's power to save. And so the prayer is, the church is praying that doors of opportunity will open. Now in our context, Paul said that we can pray for kings and all who are in authority. We ought to be praying for our nation. We ought to pray for the leaders of our nation. Our president, our vice president, Congress, Senate. We talk about our leaders in, 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 I guess, in a national way, and then I think about our local leaders. Pray for them. Sometimes we ask the question, why do we need to pray for them? Well, listen to what Paul says. Here's the reason. That we, that is, those of us who belong to the family of God, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. The idea is that we ought to pray that we can continue to worship and serve God without fear of outside harm, molestation? Shouldn't we be grateful for the blessings of freedom that we enjoy in this country? Shouldn't we continue to pray that God will allow us to do that? Because after all, the Bible says the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. If you don't think God's involved in the affairs of the kingdoms of men, sadly mistaken. God's at work. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, God said in Scripture that He raises up and pulls down. God has that kind of power. So we need to be praying for those who are in positions of authority. Then I would just say this in closing. We ought to pray for those who are leaders in the church. The awesome responsibility of serving in the Lord's church. In chapter 3, Paul talks about those who function as overseers or bishops or elders weight of responsibility that rests upon them, the spiritual responsibility that they have to know that they're going to answer to God for every single soul under their oversight. That's why in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Paul said, or the Hebrew writer said, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves that they may do it with joy and not with grief. So pray for our leaders. Lift up their names to the throne of God. Pray for our leaders and their wives. Pray for our deacons. He talks about the deacons in verses 8 through 13. Pray for those who preach and teach the word. Pray for our teachers. Pray for every member of the body of Christ. It's a great privilege. I want to close by saying prayer is a tremendous blessing, tremendous privilege. And I think one of the things that we have the opportunity to do when we come together on the first day of the week and we pray corporately is to praise God for who He is and what He is. To acknowledge His holiness and all the many blessings and favors that we receive from Him. And to express to Him the tremendous heartfelt gratitude that we feel for all the things that He does for us on a daily basis. Prayer is a vital part of the church. And those of us who belong to the family of God, we ought to be grateful for the privilege of prayer. And to know that when we come together as a corporate body, that we can pray. And you remember what James said? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man 
You remember what he said? It avails much. You know what he's saying there? Prayer works. It's powerful. So we need to, we need to be praying. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. You know, the Bible says, as we read a moment ago, that God wants all people to be saved. He's interested in the hearts and lives of people. And he showed that by sending Jesus to die for our sins. And we're grateful for the death of Christ. And the fact that when we obey the gospel, we come in contact with the cleansing power of his blood to know that all of our sins can be washed away. If you're here tonight and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you would be willing to repent of all your sins and confess his name before others and be baptized into Christ, the Bible says you'll enjoy the remission of your sins, the forgiveness of sins. If you're here tonight and you need the prayers of the church, you know, in James chapter 5, we talk about the people for whom we pray. James said, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. It might be that we can go before the throne of God on your behalf and pray. Pray with you, pray for you, with the assurance that God will abundantly pardon. So if you're here tonight and you need the prayers of the church, won't you come as we stand and sing?